is Thursday, September 19th, and welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience podcast, where every week I take a look behind the scenes at the world of film and television with those who have lived it and experienced it. And this week's show is one that I've been excited to release ever since I did the interview back in July, and that is with former talk show host John Kerwin. I actually became aware of who John Kerwin is through Instagram. And as I was scrolling through his page and seeing some of the names that he's interviewed in the past, a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, I've never interviewed a talk show host before. So it'd be interesting to interview someone about interviewing because interviewing's not as easy as it might seem. There's a lot of research and a lot of prep that goes into it. And there's also certain skills that you really need to have and develop if you're going to be a good interviewer. And that's among many things that John and I discussed uh, during this episode. We discussed you know, his growing up in New York, what made him want to have his own talk show, and some of the lessons and the tips that he learned uh, throughout his career. And, you know, I don't know if it was a, a willing thing or if it was just, you know, through the conversation, but a lot of those lessons really made an impact on me and has really changed the way that I look at interviewing. And it definitely for the better. And there are some crazy stories that he tells uh, in this episode as well about you know, having that little bit of uh, uh, hustle, if you will, for doing interviews. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. I know I had a blast doing this interview. It's one of my all-time favorites, and it's something that I really took a lot away from. I know it's a bit of a deviation from the normal format of talking with directors, actors, producers, but... This is a really good discussion, and if anyone wants to have their own talk show or they aspire to be a journalist or anything that involves interviewing, you'll definitely get something out of this episode. At least I hope you do, just like I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mr. John Kerwin. So this week should be a very interesting show because for the very first time ever, I will be interviewing a talk show host on the Derek Diamond Experience, and I'm very happy to welcome Mr. John Kerwin to the show. How are you tonight, sir? I'm good, Derek. Glad to be with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time. And it's it's kind of funny that you know you're the host of a late night talk show, and for me, this is one of the later interviews that I've ever done. So in a way, it's kind of fitting that. It's, it's kind of under that time frame. That's right. And I like the way you were right on time when you called me. A lot of times people aren't prepared. I don't know if you've noticed that. You know, you'll have a, a time for an interview, and then it's, where are they? Or you get their answering machine or their, their voicemail, or you're calling and you're wondering what happened. And it's amazing. I'm amazed at how unprofessional people can be. And, like, I have a very quiet place for this. I was ready for your call. And it was just nice to know that you were on time, and I'm assuming you're prepared as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like when you're that unprepared, and it's to me it's very obvious because, you know, I listen to a lot of other podcasts and I watch a lot of shows, and you get conditioned to it, and especially with doing my own show, you can tell when hosts are prepared and when they're not. Just by, if, if you're watching a video podcast or a show on YouTube, 
you can tell by the mannerisms and whatnot and just kind of the hesitation in their voice that they're kind of struggling to come up with what they're wanting to say. So I've always... Or, or, even, even, the ones that, or even the ones that are on video, you know, on the one hand, podcasts are great because there's a real relaxed feeling. But sometimes you'll watch them and it literally looks like they're going to fall asleep. It's like five guys in T-shirts. <laughs> They're slouched over, and they're telling, hey, man, so what, how was your morning? And, and I'm like, wow, this is like, it's, it's gone to quite an extreme where I think that there should be some kind of nervousness or excitement about it. And that's the reason why I, I always prefer a studio audience when I do my work. It's because if a celebrity comes in and they just want to kind of like mellow out and not do anything, it's really difficult because the audience is there and they're responding to everything and, and they'll let you know if they're bored or if they're offended or if they think something's funny or touching. And so it really amps everything up when there is an audience there. And I know that some podcasts will sometimes squeeze a small audience into like a little studio or something to get some kind of reaction. But I know that it does really help with the energy because that's the one issue I have with podcasts is I look at a lot of times there's no excitement the excitement of a show, which is what I get off on, you know? I mean, if I'm interviewing a celebrity, I'm really excited. I'm dressed up. I'm ready, you know? And, and a lot of times, if you don't have an audience there, sometimes they just kind of cruise through it. And, and that really is so disappointing to me. There is such a thing as being too casual when it comes to podcasting, because the appeal to me for podcasts is that it feels like when I'm listening to an interview, whether it's you know on YouTube and it's in the background or I have my AirPods in and I'm listening to another podcast, you feel like you're a fly on the wall in the room of people talking and you're just kind of an observer, which I think is great. But you mentioning that those shows that have the guys just kind of sitting around, you know, in a pair of gym shorts and a t-shirt just kind of talking, that's that's almost too casual because I feel like with the podcast, you have to have that certain level of preparedness and professionalism because at the end of the day, it's still a show. Well, it's amazing because it's really a fight because on the one hand, you want it to have those qualities that you like, which is the fact that this is just a bunch of guys talking or women talking and it's a very intimate and conversational and, and you feel like you're involved, like you're their friend. Whereas if you watch The Tonight Show, for instance, you feel like you're more at a party as an observer watching these special people talking. And that isn't as intimate sometimes. So you lose something when you have the artifice of a, of a talk show. But I like it because what you do get is you get more entertainment and you get more energy. And I, I choose that over that. But you're right. I do lose some intimacy. I mean, that's why you have someone like uh, Larry King or Charlie Rose or any of those guys that did that one-on-one -on -one interview in a quiet studio. There really were chances for people to be truly revealing. I don't know if you know who uh, Terry Gross is. Terry Gross is on NPR and she's been doing a radio show for like 30 years. And it's very, very quiet and intimate and she gets guests to really open up. I saw Robin Williams. They, they did a Robin Williams interview they showed and he was very, very interesting, but he was so not trying to be funny because there was no audience there. And it was a, a different person compared to if you saw him on Letterman or something where it's, pow, I got to come out here. I got to destroy this audience. 
So I think I, when you see that, it's a really good example when you see the difference of how people can be in an interview. And I just think it's always interesting when you see the same person interviewed in different scenarios and how it changes. One celebrity being interviewed, say, by you on a podcast compared to being interviewed by Seth Meyers is a completely different dynamic. I personally like the dynamic, even though it's a little bit artificial. I just like it when people come with their A-game wanting to entertain and to really blow the audience away. To me, that's just more fun. And I guess I grew up with that because when I was a kid, there weren't podcasts. It was The Tonight Show. It was shows like the Cabot Show, studio audience shows. And so that's what I really love doing. I like having that energy. Right. And I will admit that's something that I've never really tried before. I've done live shows on you know Facebook and other social media platforms, but I've never done a a show that I've had an audience come in. And I, I imagine it, it is that completely different environment because, you know, it's like when you go to a concert or you go to a comedy show, even you as an audience member feed off the other audience members because if everyone's laughing, it makes you laugh more. If they're screaming, it makes you scream more. So I, I can imagine that it's a completely different environment, one that, honestly, I'd love to try out sometime. Yeah, it's a different it's a different skill set almost. And I come from a stand up comedy background, so I was always used to being in front of audiences. But it, it it is very different. Sometimes you'll see guests that are nervous, which is always surprising to me when there's a celebrity and you look down and they're shaking, and it's like, wow, this person's nervous. But there's an audience there, and and you don't know what's in their head and what they're worried about saying or not saying, or if they're concerned about being funny. But I'm amazed at how really well-known people will sometimes be very nervous on shows in front of a studio audience. And But I kind of like that in a way, you know. And, and on the one hand, you know, you want to get them relaxed to the point where they can open up and so on. But I like the fact that initially they're shaking or nervous. To me, that shows that they're trying and they care. I think nervousness even shows, because I even still get nervous when I do shows, it's. I've heard that saying a long time ago that when the butterflies are gone, then you shouldn't do what you're doing anymore. Because I think the the nervousness and the butterflies add that little bit of a. I don't know if an edge is the right way to describe it, but it, it adds that little extra something that even motivates you a little more because you're in a way overcoming the nervousness to do a good show. And that's what we were talking about with podcasts. I don't get the sense that there's any nervousness at all sometimes. I just get the feeling that it's so relaxed that it's almost like it's a block toward creativity. Because if you're nervous and you want to do well, your brain is going a million miles an hour, you know, a second. You know, you're trying to figure out what's funny, what's this, what's interesting, how can I do this, you know. But if you're just so relaxed where you just don't care, I, I literally see some really funny, interesting, talented people on podcasts where I, I walk away just thinking, wow, that, that wasn't impressive at all. I wouldn't want to buy their book or listen to their music or see their movie. They just didn't seem interesting. They just, it just seemed so nonchalant. And that's, that's the problem I have. But, you know, on the good podcasts, you don't really have that, hopefully. But there's a percentage where I, I see it's just too common. Yeah, no, no, I totally get that. 
But um, kind of backtracking a little bit, you mentioned that you grew up watching you know, talk shows like The Tonight Show. Um, where are you originally from? And growing up, was that what inspired you to want to create your own show? Well, where I grew up, I wanted to get out of. So that was definitely an impetus. I grew up, you ever hear the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? Mm-hmm. Well, that, that was where I grew up. In fact, the McDowell's, which was what they called McDonald's, they changed the name. That McDonald's was my McDonald's growing up. Oh, in wow. New York. And it was, a, it was tough. It was a very difficult neighborhood. In fact, I grew up five minutes away from Don, where Donald Trump grew up. He was in the rich part, but like five minutes away from that was the middle class part. And a lot of times when I'll see him fighting and it really does feel like I'm back in Queens listening because that's the way it kind of had to be. Someone says something to you, you have to say something back to them. You have to attack back or else you're going to get flattened. Right. But that's a neighbor. I grew up around Nicki Minaj is from, I don't know, a quarter of a mile away from me. Ray Romano was close by. Really a melting pot. But the way it was for me is I'm an only child and my parents got divorced when I was three years old. And the deal was my father picked me up every Sunday morning and would take me to a movie. He was a movie lover. And it started out like where he would take me to see like Dumbo, you know, or Pinocchio. But very quickly that bored him. And we would, he would soon be seeing like Clint Eastwood films or Burt Reynolds films. So I'm seeing like these R rated films when I was, three, four, five years old. And I remember even at that age, because in those movies, there's always like one kind of sex scene or topless scene. And I always remember it being really, really happy about that because the other kids didn't get to experience that. But I got to see these movies. Every week I would see another movie with my father. And who knew that years later I'd be interviewing a lot of these people that I, that I saw in those movies. It's kind of crazy how yeah, that works out sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you talk about interviewing. Uh, my mother taught me how to interview. And it wasn't anything to do with her wanting to teach me. It was because in her bedroom, there was a uh, big window. And she had two chairs facing each other right by the window. And every night, she, we would talk, just sitting across from each other. And she would tell me all her problems, her difficulties with uh, boyfriends and and every night I would do this, and I had to listen. Like, she, at any point, if I was, like, spacing out, she'd say, what was the last thing I just said? And if I couldn't repeat it, bam, she'd just whack me on the head. So I always had to be listening to everything. And that is a key lesson in interviewing. The other thing is I had to ask good questions. I mean, even as a little kid, like, if she said she was dating some guy and he was, like, angry and she didn't know why. I remember one time I said, does this guy like strawberry ice cream? And she said, that's a terrible question. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Why would you ask me that? <laughs> but then another time I would say something like, you think maybe he's angry because like my dad, he's gone going through a divorce. And he has to pay all this money to his ex-wife. And she'd say, oh, that's a, that's a good question. And so I would do this like all the time with her. And I really learned what works and what doesn't. A few years after that, I remember I stayed over at my friend's house and in the middle of the night, I went to get a glass of water and his mother, who was gorgeous, was just sobbing. I said, what's wrong? She said, oh, I had a fight with my boyfriend. 
I said, oh, tell me about it. And for the next three hours, she's telling me about that relationship and every other relationship. And when it was over, she said, I got to tell you, I have never felt so comfortable talking to anyone in my entire life. I was eight years old. That's crazy. And then she said, said, if you're only 20 years older, I'd be dating you. And I thought, you know something? There's, There's definitely something to this interviewing thing. Definitely something there. I think I like this. <laughs> now, it's funny, you know, you mentioned listening, and you also mentioned Terry Gross earlier. She was at a uh, podcasting conference I went to last summer called Podcast Movement. It was in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and she actually said the number one tip to being a good interviewer is to listen. As I think any good interviewer will tell you, you have to be doing that. You can't. Like right now, as you and I are talking, you can't be thinking in your head, oh, what's the next question? What's something funny I can say? That's going to take you out of what we're discussing. Really, your next question should be somewhere within what I'm saying. Right. That's a follow-up question. Rather than just going, I mean, I was on the red carpet recently, and I saw this interviewer with their iPhone, holding their iPhone and looking at it, because they had all these questions lined up. And they were talking to a celebrity in the red carpet and literally asking one question, and then they would answer, and then they would look, keep looking at their iPhone and just ask the next question. Okay, now what about this? Now what about this? And the celebrity was giving some really interesting, crazy answers where there were follow-ups everywhere just being completely neglected just because they were sticking to these 12 questions they had on their iPhone. It was terrible. Every question, every answer, rather, um, has a question within that answer. And that's something that I had to learn early on when I, because I've been doing this show for a little over five years now. And early on, I learned not to do that because I was guilty of the, you know, I would ask a question, they would answer. I would say, okay, cool, next question. They would answer and then repeat the process. And I learned probably three to four episodes in, I said, you know, I I can't do that because I you can't be thinking, you should think ahead to a point, but you can think too far ahead because if you think too far ahead, you take yourself out of the moment. And then that's where the organicness right. is gone. Right. I once had a, a joke um, that was something like an interviewer asks an actress, what's your biggest fear? And she says, I have this recurring fear that I'm having sex with George Clooney and the ceiling crumples down and kills us both. And the interviewer says, oh, my fear is heights. Oh, my God. So, in other words, it's just ignoring, asking, because you think if someone, if an actress or someone said that to me or you, you'd want to explore that a little more rather than just... Because in, 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 in the joke, in the interviewer's mind in the joke, they're just thinking, okay, I just want to get this out, what, what, what uh, my fear is. Without, no matter what they said, they were going to say that. Yeah. And uh, we've all been guilty of that. I was guilty. I was always guilty of having some kind of a joke in my head. Like if I knew someone and celebrity was going to talk about their trip to Hawaii, and then I would have some Hawaii joke that, you know, ready. You know, maybe a comedy writer wrote it for me or something, and I had that. All I'm thinking is, okay, I can't wait till he shut up so I can tell, say this joke and make everyone laugh. 
That's just horrible. That's horrible interviewing. And the guest doesn't like it either. They're like, oh, okay. So I just told this long story. You got to laugh. Even if it works, yeah. it failed. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. But everyone, everyone has done this. But you definitely don't want to be like that person in a red car because you're like a robot. Who cares about that? You know, anybody can just read off a list of questions. Yeah, unfortunately, there are a lot of YouTube shows that I've seen that, you know, get good interview guests, but they just don't do a very good job. Because it, as an interviewer, you are driving the ship. You know, a lot of people might be watching to see the celebrity, but ultimately you're the one that's guiding the conversation. And that's something that, you know, you have to keep in mind. And if you're, if you're looking at your phone or you're just deadpanning the whole thing, then people are going to lose interest. Well, people get weird in front of celebrities. I was once having lunch with a, a celebrity, and I remember someone came over. And, you know, like it was one of those situations where you meet a celebrity and they just laugh at anything they say, you know, like, you know, because it was a funny person that I was, I was with. And, you know, like, oh, hi, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, just, just laughing at anything he said. And then, and then they go, look, Bob, I'd really like to have, like, a selfie with you. Could we do this, you know? And he said, you know, honestly – I, I just, uh, I'd rather not, I just came out of a hernia operation and I just want to relax. And the person just burst out laughing. They're just laughing. At each, oh, it didn't boy. even matter what they, what they said. It's not even listening. Just thinking everything is funny and just how can I get this picture and so on. And, and unfortunately, that's how a lot of interviewers will deal with celebrities. They'll think they're ingratiating themselves by laughing at everything they say. And what they should be doing is, like you said, listening and trying to get involved in that person so that they can learn more. You know, if you just, you know, the celebrity already when you're talking to, if you ask them a question, they're going to give you an answer. But they're not really going to give you a revealing answer unless you have a good follow-up question. Right. That's where the art of it comes. It's from the follow-up questions. No, I, I don't disagree with any of that. And it's, you know, it's something I know that I'm still learning, but I think in, in all aspects of what you do, you should always be learning. I mean, I, I listen to every show that I do, and I think, okay, well, how can I do this better? How can I do that better? And you well, know, I'll give you a recommendation. I'll tell you one, one way you can get better is by having a mentor. Like my mentor was Gary Shanley, who, of course, passed away. But he was someone that I can go to and ask any questions about interviewing, about celebrities, and he would answer them. And having a mentor who's been through where you want to be, of course, if you don't know who Gary Shanley is, Gary was a comedian and then a, the substitute host for Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. He split it with Jay Leno before Jay Leno took over because he went over and did a show of his own called It's Gary Shanley Show. Then he did the Larry Sanders Show. I think it was Emmys and like 20 Emmy nominations, whatever, just just a brilliant artist and a brilliant interviewer. And I think if you had someone that you respect that has gotten to the plateau that you want to go, that could be really helpful. What Gary would talk about with me as far as interviewing goes was being in the moment and how important that is. Being present. And again, it's kind of like what we were talking about, about not being in your head and thinking about, something funny or your next question or what can I do that's going to be fascinating and interesting and make this thing really great. 
it's just being with the person and being in, in the moment with them. And that was one of the key things. He had me read a lot of books about that because it's not easy to get there, to really get there, especially when there's a studio audience and there's pressure, there's television, and there's all these things going on around you. You have to be locked into that other person. And personally, I don't believe in notes. I mean, you may have notes in front of you right now with uh, questions. I don't believe in that. I don't. I believe in researching and knowing the person well. But I just think notes takes you out of it. I mean, imagine if you're on a first date and you're talking to a woman, getting to know her, and then you say, "Hang on one second. You just take out like a clipboard with a bunch of questions. I mean, what would that do to that?" date it would ruin it you know because there's all this person has all these predetermined questions he's asking me you know it isn't it isn't real it isn't natural or organic as you might say and so i don't believe in notes i think at the beginning you need to have some but as you get better i think you really want to do away with notes when you're interviewing that's actually good advice no, I've never, and that's a great analogy too. I've never looked at it that way. I mean, and I, I do use notes. A lot of times, you know, like this conversation has gone in different directions than what I've expected, but that's a good thing. You know, I've only had to look Absolutely. at my notes, you know, just a, a handful of times. But right, but you really, but you really don't need to. I right, mean, really, you can throw those away, and it's not like we're going to have a bad interview. I know it's like a crutch and you think, oh, well, in case this interview sucks and they have nothing to say, this will be like, and that's what it should be. This is like a last ditch effort to make this thing survive. I'm going to have 30 questions here. I'm going to ask these just in case this is horrendous. But if it's going well and we're talking, why would you have to like switch subjects and just suddenly go into, so who's your favorite guest that you've interviewed, you know? why would you need to refer to that? And you have to get to that place. And again, it takes time. I mean, I've been doing this for 17 years. I've been interviewing celebrities, you know, and it just, it, and the place that Gary Shandling was taking me to was even a, a more advanced place to be totally in the moment where you're not thinking about anything other than what this person is saying and connecting with them, not trying to be funny, not trying to be interesting, None of that, just, just being there and expressing yourself to the person one-on-one. Um, it's tough. It's tougher than people think because as you do this, you are in your head. You know, what, what should I ask him next? How can I make this better? How much time is left? What, what can we do? Is this interesting enough? Maybe I'll ask him something so he can be funnier. All that stuff, you know, goes through our heads when we do this. And it's kind of like a very zen place he would try to take me to where I would just kind of drop all that. And I think that's what makes for compelling interviews. Just you completely know, natural conversation. I, I think so. I think so. And, you know, I think there are three things that make, three C's that make a good interview, which is comforting. I think it's very important to comfort the person you're interviewing. They have to feel comfortable and then I think it, there, it needs to be compelling, certainly. And I think you need to connect. It's those three things. I think you, you, you have to connect with the person. 
And when you're connecting and the person's comfortable, I'll tell you a comfortable thing. I, won't, I was once interviewing a celebrity, and I won't mention uh, their name, but we're doing the interview, and literally, like, I see they're very agitated. It wasn't like the little nervous, good energy, but they looked really agitated. And I said, what's wrong? And he just said, I have to pee. And, you know, the studio audience laughed. I go, you know something? So do I. <laughs> and so we excused ourselves and we both went to the men's room and we came back and we took a, uh, a big bow, a very theatrical bow, <laughs> sat back down. We complimented each other's manhood. <laughs> and, then we continued the, and then we continued the interview. But the point is, is that he was very uncomfortable. And if I didn't address that and solve that, the interview would have been horrendous because all he would think about the whole time is I got to finish this and pee. Yeah. But because I, I saw it, addressed it, and made him comfortable, not only did it turn into be like this really fun moment and interesting, but after that, just opened up, just like a flower, the interview just blossomed. I don't think it gets much more so organic than that. <laughs> so, yeah, so comforting, comforting is important, connecting with the person, and then making the interview compelling. And that comes from the first two. Yeah. But you can't just go in, like, I want to make this compelling. I want to do something crazy. I'm going to take my clothes off, or I'm going to do this, or all of that stuff is kind of amateurish to try and make an interview great. Yeah, compelling is one of those things that a lot of like a lot of other emotions if you try to make it that certain way, it's not going to work because it's not natural. Like compelling happens from organic natural events whether it be, you know, a conversation or just some type of event that happens. You know, it's very few things I think are planned to be compelling and work out that way, at least from my experience. Right. And sometimes it's compelling, but it's not a good interview. Right. Sometimes you can hate the interviewer. And I, I mean, I'll give you an example. It's just Mike Tyson getting interviewed by that guy. I don't know if you saw it, that interview, one of the interviews that he did where he just hated the guy and he was cursing him out and Mike Tyson, was, you know, just yelling at him and, and putting him down. And it was compelling because he thought Mike Tyson was going to punch him in the face and the guy was like all upset. And, and so, so it was compelling, but it wasn't a good interview. Yeah. You know, it was, just, it was just compelling. But when it's compelling and they're connected and so on, I think Barbara Walters did that really well. All, all the great interviewers do that well, where, you know, if you ever saw Barbara Walters interviewing Whitney Houston, you just saw Whitney at the beginning really wasn't quite willing to talk about drug abuse and problems in her life. But man, Barbara Walters got her to really, really open up. And I, I think it's one of the highest rated interviews ever on television. Yeah. I, I but it, do... to just, it wasn't just going to happen. It wasn't just going to happen by her showing up. It took time and it took, it took the experience of a good interviewer and she liked her. They liked each other. You can tell they, they, they got along, you know. If she didn't like it, Whitney Houston didn't like Barbara Walters. She wouldn't have done that. She's not going to talk about the most private things in her life. Why would she do that? It's you building know? that it, trust. It, it is. 
It's building that trust. I'm, I'm very into making um, those that I interview very comfortable. That's really an important thing. You know, when they come down to the studio, you know, I'm making, I talk to the makeup person, make sure they have it ready. I have someone to squirt them up. I have, I find out beforehand from their publicist what their favorite drink is, what their favorite food is or snack. And, you know, and all, all these things are just to make them feel like they're ready to have a good interview, the excitement, the fun, and so on. And, and those things are very important. So by the time they sit down, next I give them a gift usually. By the time they sit down, you know, they're really at a good place. You know, I'm a big believer in gift giving. I think that's, uh, that really helps a lot. You know, like if I do an interview, say I'll do an interview on someone, it's for like a magazine and it'll be in a restaurant where I meet them. They haven't seen you before. They don't know you. But I'll have like concealed some little wrapped gift, and I'll I'll give that to them. And it's interesting because everyone loves gifts. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's Julia Roberts or you know, or some bachelorette. Every celebrity loves gifts. And you know, they're thinking, hmm, what did this interviewer give me? What is this? You know, and and then they open it up, so there's that drama. And it's like, oh, and then if it's something good, as opposed to something they've received a million times, if it's something that's really comes from the research you've done about the person, it really is a launching point, and it, and it makes them comfortable, helps you to connect with them. Like, I'll give you an example. I have a friend that's trying to get me a meeting with Larry King. He has, he's been ill, but I'm, I'm trying to get a meeting with him, and I think that's going to happen. And I already got him a gift. What I did was, we're both from New York City. I got him a Spalding ball. I don't know if you know what these are. These are the red New York City rubber balls that they have it in the playgrounds. Very, I don't know if it's only New York, but it was definitely, definitely a New York thing. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of hard to find. But by giving him this, and I know he played with this ball as I did and every other kid in New York, as a gift, oh, a Spalding ball. I grew up with these things. I haven't seen them in so long. This is fantastic. Do you know about the, you had these two? Where are you from? It's like it just opens up a whole um, area of connection that you'll have just from that gift. I remember I had a guest that came on the show. Her name is Nancy Cartwright. I don't know if you know who she is. She was the voice of she was the voice of Bart Simpson, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, also a million other voices. But that's the one that made her quarter of a billion dollars, I guess. But she came on the show and she came on with this cake for me. That she had baked this giant cake. Oh, that's awesome! And and it had my name on it, and it also she had found out things that I liked, like it had like the New York Yankees logo. I'm a Yankee fan. It had a guitar because I played the guitar at that time. It had all these things about me, and she had baked this herself. And she brings it on, and what a way to start an interview, you know? And it instantly made me feel great about it even though this is a trick that i would do and we had a terrific interview but that cake really was such a a great start you know and, I, and then afterwards i gave cut it up gave it to the studio audience little pieces and everything really really beautiful uh thing so that's another little trick again that's obviously you can't do that with me because we're not face to face but when you're interviewing someone and you're meeting them for the first time good little trick to remember what kind of cake was it? It was. I remember it was white, and it had a lot of colored cream. Um, and it was a yellow cake inside. I remember that. 
Nice. But it was really big, but it was like like a sheet, you know, like that big, you know. Yeah. It, it, was, it wasn't like a small cake. It was like a giant cake that she made. So she, she put a lot of effort into it. You know, it looked good, very good on television, too. That's awesome. Now, something I was actually curious about, and you just answered the question, was what do you do you know, to prep for an interview? Because you doing a lot of studio-based interviews. You get to meet a lot of your guests in person. So I was curious as to how much prep work you would do as far as talking with the person and getting to know them so that way you have at least that little bit of a connection before you go you know, out on the stage and you know, do your show. So no, I that's uh, that's a great none. idea. None. None. None? None. 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 I don't believe in that. Um and, and a lot of people don't either. I mean I know Letterman would do a thing where he actually would have like a guard like on his office door because he had had the experience of a celebrity coming in as an interview that night, opening up the door to, Hey Dave, how you doing? And walking in and just talking to him. And he didn't want that. So he had someone guarding his door just so celebrities couldn't get in. So the first time that he would meet them that night would be on set. Now I agree with that. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I'm, I'm big on comfort. So all the things, every, everything from their experience from, you know, getting to the studio to being in the studio, all of that is all comforting and so on. But as far as meeting them, my experience has been that I'll meet them and they'll immediately try to tell me stories. And it's stories a lot of times that should be told on the air. And then we'll get on the air and they'll say, oh, yeah, it's like that story I told you backstage. And now it's like a secondhand story to the audience. And it's just not as fun and it's not as exciting. And they know I've already heard the story. And so many times that'll happen where they'll just get you in a conversation and they start, they start blabbing and telling you some of the, the best material. I also like the excitement of seeing them for the first time when the audience sees them for the first time. So I would actually hide in my office so I wouldn't see them even. I just didn't even want to see them. I wanted it to just be completely natural, like I was really meeting them. Because otherwise it's... It's a little bit fake. If I've already met with them and I've talked with them for five or ten minutes, and then they come on, it's like, hi, I'm shaking their hand as they enter. It's like I'm just meeting them, and yet I just had this whole conversation. To me, it just doesn't feel, doesn't feel natural or organic doing it that way. So I don't believe in that. No, that's, that's good. That's very good. Because, like I said, I've never, I've never really known much about the, the behind-the-scenes working of, of a talk show before, so I, it's all a new experience to me, but something well, else. Everybody's different with that. I think Jay Leno would always like to meet them and talk with them beforehand and, and BS with them and so on. But I was of the school. I didn't believe in that. I just, I just like the idea that I meet them for the first time when the camera is seeing them for the first time and the studio audience is seeing it. It's more exciting for me to do it that way. You the know, true organic like experience. I feel like it's more organic that way. And then whatever gems uh, we talked about aren't lost in the, in the makeup room, in the green room. I mean, it's like a crime almost. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't care about them, and I'm not making sure that their, their time before the show is pleasant. It's just that I don't want to be there. Right. You know? No, that all makes sense. Now, I, I had mentioned you know, the behind-the-scenes of a talk show host. Now, how did you... For one, how did you come up with the idea to do your show, and how was it transitioning it from the idea into it actually happening? 
Well, I'll tell you how it, it started for me. I was working at the Improv in Hollywood, which is a comedy club. I was the MC there. And basically, I introduced all the comedians that would come on stage. And I worked for Bud Friedman, who was the owner of the club, and Mark Lano. And I was on stage one night, and Jerry Seinfeld was waiting to come on. I could see him in the wings waiting. I was getting ready to introduce him. But something about the lighting that was there was shining on his watch that he had. And I, I'd never seen a watch like this in my life. It was gigantic. And I, and I, and I said, uh, Jerry, how much, how, just how much is that watch that you're wearing? You know, and he said, from, screamed from off stage. Well, I'll tell you how much my watch is if you tell me how much that piece of shit you're wearing is. Wow. And everyone laughed because I had, I had on like a, I had like on a Timex, $20 Timex. So I said, well, if it's okay with you, why don't you, uh, why don't we switch watches for a moment? Come on stage. And he said, sure. He comes on stage and he gives me his, I guess his fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 Breitling I put on my wrist and I gave him my Timex. And as soon as I put on his watch, I fall to the floor because it's so heavy. <laughs> and I'm like rolling around the stage <laughs> and he puts on my watch and literally is like he's getting gangrene on his wrist. Just so disgusted by this cheap piece of junk that he was wearing. And everyone was really laughing. And then I said, uh, that's great. Now can we switch cars? <laughs> and everyone got a kick out. And there was a producer in the audience. And he said, you should be interviewing celebrities. You should have a talk show. You should be doing that. And that was how it started. That's great. That's really awesome. Now yeah. Yeah, I guess a lot of people wouldn't have had the gumption to say anything to him. It would just again, it would just be all about the, like it's like a list of questions. Oh, next up, introduce Jerry Seinfeld. Okay, he's our next comedian. Uh, he was going to say on a Tonight Show. He has his own sitcom. I mean, that would be the normal thing to do. But I guess it was a little risky doing that, and it's risky doing follow-up questions. You know, I guess there's no risk at all in just being on the right carpet and reading. 10 questions from your iPhone. There's no risk in that. A robot can do that. What's risky is listening and asking questions and being curious enough about the person to, to do so. I was curious about his watch. I'd never seen a watch that big. It was, it was like a can of tuna fish on his arm. I've never been into watches that are that big. For one, I could never afford them. And two, it's just they're, they're so huge that it almost seems like an inconvenience to even carry them around. <laughs> Well, it looked, looked, looked good on him, though. I mean, he, his, his looked, it looked, looked pretty cool. I don't think it would work for me, but it, it was part of his style. Anyway so, anyway, so that's how I started. And then I just started with a small local show. And I, at the beginning, I didn't even have celebrities. I would just interview people I thought were interesting. Like I interviewed, I remember, I interviewed this lookalike. who was Drew Barrymore's lookalike in movies. And she looked like Drew Barrymore. And I would talk to her like, I didn't even know. I, I, I mean, that would look like a stand-in. I didn't even know what a stand-in did. I'd ask her what it was, and she'd tell me about the work, how much money she made. And I'd ask her, you know, did you meet Drew? And, oh, yeah. I said, well, what happened? I was very curious about it. And it was a good interview. And I would do stuff like that, you know, just interview people I thought were interesting, just kind of like what you're doing in a way. And then I had my first celebrity uh, who agreed to come on. And that was Richard Klein, who played Larry Dallas on Three's Company. Mm-hmm. And, and that was my first celebrity. And I prepared so much. I 
studied every as I as I normally do, but even more so with that. Everything I was studying, anything I could find on him, and he was just hilarious. And we had a great time. I I, I used maybe three percent of what I had worked on in my research. Didn't need any of it, although it was all in my head. And then after that interview, I had I think uh, fourteen interviews with celebrities lined up on on the power of that one interview. That's great. And that was how it started. Yeah. It's funny because in a way it's similar, you know, me starting my podcast is very different from how you started your show, but the concept of it in the beginning, I would interview a combination of just my friends who I thought would make for an interesting interview and then local people I knew from anywhere to, you know, authors to aspiring filmmakers. And I would have them on my show just because I thought they had interesting stories and then my my first celebrity interview was Jake Plummer, who used to be a quarterback for the Denver Broncos. And I remember mm. he because I had gotten his um, or I gave him my Skype ID and I was waiting for him to call me. And I'm just sweating profusely because of how nervous I am. And I used maybe half the questions that I had had written because within, you know, 10 seconds of us talking, I knew he was a cool guy. So we just kind of. Just kind of chatted for half an hour. Great. Great. That's a great story. That's good. So it's a similar thing. You, you start off, you know, I'm writing a book. I'm almost finished with it now. It's called How to Interview Celebrities. And it's basically from my experience. And one of the things I say is if you're starting out is to interview local celebrities. You know, if you're, if you're in the middle of nowhere even, and there's a, like a local newspaper, there's someone that did something, some hero, someone that saved a cat, or there's something in the paper. And you can just reach out to them and just say, hey, look, take you to lunch. Can I do an interview with you? And starting out that way, you know, and just finding people who do dry cleaners. You know, you see those eight by tens everywhere. Just call those, those people, find their, their number. There's a place called, I think, IMDB Pro. I don't know if you know it, but you can just mm-hmm. buy that and just get their agents if they have. A lot of times they have direct contact information for celebrities and just write them a letter. I'm a big believer. I've gotten so many celebrities from writing emails or you got me from an email, right? I mean, that, I mean, this is so important knowing how to write and how, having to write a compelling letter asking someone to be a guest. It's and funny you mentioned I, IMDb I really think, Pro because that's exactly how I found your contact information. Right, and that's how you find out um, many celebrities, mm-hmm. and and it's just like you have to pay a, a yearly fee, but you know you get their publicist's contact information. You got to write a letter to the publicist. A lot of times, is another state. You're not going to have Tom Cruise's home phone number on IMDb Pro, but you know it gives you a contact, a way to a way to reach their people. But it becomes very important to write letters and emails and to get good at that. And But I, that's what I recommend if you're starting out is local celebrities and people you know, that will be very open to being interviewed by you and just get good at it. And you should always be interviewing, by the way. I mean, not just on shows, but just in life. You know, if you're taking an Uber, you know, it's like every time I take an Uber, it's an interview. I'm talking to him, finding out about his life dreams and everything and if you're naturally curious you'll get a lot of amazing stuff you know though i just uh i'll tell you a quick thing i uh when i was about 15 years old i was living in manhattan 
uh, with my father, and I used to walk along the theater district, and I always wanted to see a Broadway show, but I couldn't afford it. And I was just kind of walk around and see. And one night I was there just looking, and I saw a cloud outside the theater, and I realized it was an intermission, which all the shows did. And people would go out there smoking and so on. But then I noticed when they went back in, they didn't like check their their ticket stub. So the next night I took I took one of my father's cigarettes and I put on like a sport jacket. I'm 15 years old. And I kind of uh, blend in during this intermission time. I'm just pretending to smoke a cigarette. But then I walked in, and and I ended up seeing the second half of every Broadway show that was <laughs> in New York City. But if that's not enough of a hustle, after the show was over, I'd go to the backstage door. And as the Broadway stars would come out, I would say, Hi, my name is John. I, I, I write for my high school newspaper and we have a front page story we want to do on you because you're so wonderful in the show. Can I have an interview? And they say, absolutely. So I was like interviewing like every Broadway star. There was no, there was no high school news. I didn't write for my high school newspaper, you know, and I would interview all these stars, you know, I was like, who is this kid? You know? And then I would ask the star, like, you know something, I really would like to see the show one more time to make this story really great. And I feel like I missed a couple of quotes from the show do you think I can see it again? They go, absolutely. I'll put you on the guest list. And that's how I saw the first half of every show on Broadway. That's some hustle. That That's <laughs> awesome, hustle. actually. <laughs> 15 years old. 15 years old. That's what I did. So I, I got to see all the shows for free, and then I, I interviewed all the, all the stars. That's awesome. Yeah, having, having a little bit of, of moxie uh, will help you. You know, I remember one time there was this, Thing I want to go to is it called the TV Land Awards, and they had this huge red carpet, all these like retro TV stars, you know, from sitcoms and everything. And I couldn't get a press pass, you know, I was just starting out. So what I did was I went to this uh, this rug store and I got a, a red carpet remnant. It was like I don't know, like, like two feet by three feet. And I rolled it up and with a cameraman we went to the Hollywood Palladium. And I just like a block away, I put the red carpet down. I was wearing a suit and I had like a professional hand mic. And I just, as celebrities were pulling up, I said, hi, can I have an interview on, on, on my red carpet? And, and they, they liked it. I had 25 interviews with celebrities on this little red carpet that I had that wasn't even <laughs> part of the show. It was across the street. And then it turns out that the celebrities would go on the real red carpet and were talking about how I was across the street doing this. And then the producers came out and invited my cameraman and myself to actually see the show. So now we're in the show. We watch the show. And then afterwards, I, since I was there, I got like another 25 interviews with celebrities. And then it was over. So, yeah, you got to have a little bit of a hustle, I think. It, it helps. And I, I certainly, it's a New Yorker in me, I guess. No, you definitely have to have that. You have to have that plus a little bit of persistence to to sometimes get the interviews that you want, you know, and you have to be persistent, but you also, I think you also have to be a little bit patient too, because I know when I send out emails, you know, asking for interviews, I know I'm not always going to get a quick response. You know, some I will get day of, most of them are day after, but sometimes they will be, you know, weeks after. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's having that little bit yeah. of patience too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you just got to do things that are a little risky. You know, I mean, some people listening to this might say, 
I don't know. I think that this is a little bit over the line, but I'll tell you what it was. Okay. So I came out here on summer vacation when, um, and then that summer vacation actually extended um, for about six months. So I was out here for like six months. I took off um, before I went to college. And I wanted to interview Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester was the biggest star in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, how can I do that? You know, And of course, there's no way to reach him or anything. But I found out, you know, I got one of those maps of the stars home, and I found out where he lived. And he lived in Pacific Palisades at this, you know, this incredible mansion on Amalfi Drive. And uh, I didn't even have a car at the time. I just, I just took like four buses to get over there. And I went on, on Thanksgiving because, one, I thought he might be there because, you know, it's Thanksgiving. He might be home. And two, because in the movie Rocky, there was a scene where, you know, he's, it's Thanksgiving and, and someone goes, you know, come on, Rocky, it's Thanksgiving. He goes, hey, to you it's Thanksgiving. To me it's Thursday. And somehow that, I related to that as a kid because I, I didn't have much of a family. So anyway, so I go there to his high, I ring the doorbell, you know, and they say, you know, who is it? I said, you know, my name is John Kerwin. I'd like to interview Sylvester Stallone. He goes, oh, sorry, he's not here. You know, I said, okay, I'll wait. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. He's, 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 not, he's not even in the city. I said, okay, well, I'll wait till he comes back. So now I'm waiting, and as I'm waiting, I notice cars start pulling up, you know, and it's like families. And I, and I realized, okay, there's a Thanksgiving thing going on. I'm saying, you know, hello, happy Thanksgiving. You know, they, they're like, who is this nut? You know, just, just standing out here. And as everyone's going, all of a sudden, the police show up. And who walks out but Sylvester Stallone? And I said, oh, hi, my name is John Kerwin. I, I liked, I'm here to interview you. She said, <laughs> he just looks at me and he goes, why me? Why don't you go bother Barbara Streisand? Go to her house. It's over there, you know. And they, they all laughed. All the cops laughed. And I go, well, you know, Barbara doesn't have as good, uh, has better security than you. And nobody laughed at that, you know. And, and he, he goes, so, so what, do you, what did you want to talk about? And I, and, I, and, I, and I suddenly, I was interviewing him. I was interviewing him right there. He's wearing his karate pants and a T-shirt. And I was interviewing him there. And then after a while, I go, I got to go, you know, I got to go have Thanksgiving. <laughs> and he, he gave me a contact number. He goes, we can finish this up and talk and we can have a sit down or whatever. And that never happened. And again, I was too young to pursue it enough. But I got to kind of interview him. Yeah. And, and, and it was the impossible. Like I had told people that I wanted to do this. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. But there I was. So that's what someone at 17 years old interviewing him. Now, you can say, oh, that wasn't cool. You went to his house and you bothered him on Thanksgiving or whatever. I don't know. I guess. Uh, you know, was it really that horrible? I didn't do anything mean, you know. I just, but that's, uh, that's kind of like a gorilla interview, you know, kind yeah. of like almost pre-TMZ style. But, but you got to get it in somehow. You can get to people. If you really want to meet somebody or interview somebody, you can. You know, you just have to really want it, and you have to be resourceful. That's like, awesome. Who do you want to interview? Who would you want to interview? He didn't interview anyone. Uh, well, my number one dream guest is Kevin Smith. Oh, really? Well, that shouldn't be that hard to, to do. I haven't interviewed him, but, I'm, but I mean, that shouldn't be... I mean, that isn't... It's not like you're asking for Denzel Washington, you know? I mean, it's Kevin Smith. He does a lot of 
smaller talk shows, a lot of radio shows. He's a good guest, by the way. He's a funny guest. Yeah. No, I went to yeah. I went to one of his Q and A shows that he did down in Orlando. I think five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. And you, this was before I was really into podcasting and everything. But you know, he he was he was fantastic, and but he's such a big influence on me in both you know the podcasting side because one of the reasons why I'm into podcasting is because I listen to his shows, and two. His him making clerks back in the early '90s, seeing what he did with that and knowing the story about it was one of the inspirations for me wanting to make movies. Derek, anybody listening to this is going to say the same thing. That's a great pitch. Write that in a letter and get it to him. And then if he doesn't answer that, write another letter and another letter and another letter until he becomes a guest of yours. If you really want him. You can get him. I think after hearing that, Sylvester... If I I was Kevin Smith and I heard what you just said, I'll do his podcast, especially if you were persistent. But I bet you haven't written like 20 letters to him yet. I have not. Or to his people. And you have Mm Iron Man. But that's it. So you have to to kind of take that step. And that is kind of like the hustle in what I've done. You know, I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of celebrities and many, many of them I've gotten on my own. You know, I interviewed, uh, I want to interview Dick Cavett. He's a classic talk show host. Mm-hmm. And I wrote him a letter and I had seen an obscure, I went to the museum of television. I saw an obscure roast he did with Milton Berle. And he said during the thing, he goes, what I would like to do a dream of mine would be to ad lib with you, Mr. Burl. And Milton Berle said, okay, I'll check my brains and we can start. And he said, uh, the cabin said, well, that, that would be a, a small check room. And that was his comeback. <laughs> but it was very funny in the moment, and it was quick. Yeah. And I, and I wrote about how I liked that, how he challenged him, first of all, Milton Berle, who was very quick and funny and so on. And he was this young comedian, challenged him. And then he had an actually good ad lib. And I just wrote that in, in the letter. And he said, he goes, it's because of that letter that I'm flying to California to be interviewed by you. He told my producer, it's that letter. That's awesome. And it was that detail, because I, no one else had said it, because this is something I found to be obscure, you know? And so that's kind of like the gift giving thing. It's finding that thing that is, I, I doubt people are giving Larry King's Spalding balls, you know, as gifts, like this, this last year at least, you know? I, I can't imagine. It's finding that thing that connects you with them. And that made him remember of something that was very important to him. He had lived with Milton Berle, and he did well. That was like a great victory in his life. But people don't remember that, or, or you know, no one ever talked about that. So that was what my letter contained. So it's finding those things where they go, yeah, why not? Why not? Why wouldn't I go on his podcast? No, for so sure. And that was how much I believe in it. That was good strategy. But before we go, I, yeah. I did want to ask you, do you have an ETA on uh, when your book's going to be released? Uh, this year. Uh, I don't know uh, exactly what month, but it will be this year. It's going to be called How to Interview Celebrities. So it's going to be, a, I believe, the best Bible of, of doing that that there is. And it's a select market. You know, I know. Like, for instance, Larry King has written books, or Barbara Walters has written books titled 
you know, you can talk to anybody in the world and say anything, you know, as opposed to it being about interviewing because there's not enough people. They want to try and get like as broad of market as possible. So they're trying to do it about the art of conversation with Larry King, you know, as opposed to interviewing. But this book actually is for podcasters and people who want to do talk shows and radio shows and print interviews and all of that. Any time you're interviewing a celebrity or even if you're going to a party, and there's going to be a celebrity there, and you want to connect with them and build rapport and, and create a friendship, that kind of stuff will be in this book. And it's, it's very specific. And it's not going to be for the masses, but I think it's going to be something that will be read by people like you, hopefully. No, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. It sounds awesome and something that is right up my alley, so I'm very much looking forward Good. to it. Great, great. And then last thing, and, um, oh, go ahead. Yep. I was going to say uh, John Kerwin official, if you want to go to my Instagram, see some of the people I've interviewed. That was John actually going to be my next question. Official. How did I know that? <laughs> it's like you've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, John, thank and you. I, 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 before you go, I'd like to know uh, how to follow your work as well. What is What is your... Uh, the best way to to listen to your interviews, aside from mine, of course, which you'll send me. Yes, yeah, so um, my podcast is available on Apple Podcast and Spotify. You can just search for the Derek Diamond Experience. I'm Great, on I have Spotify. Perfect. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at D Diamond Podcast. D Diamond Podcast. Mm-hmm. Great. It was a pleasure, Derek. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, this was awesome. Great, great. Thanks again. Thanks again to John Kerwin for taking the time to have that awesome conversation. Be sure to follow him on Instagram at John Kerwin Official, and be on the lookout for his book, which will be coming out later this year. And John, thank you again so much for the lessons that you know you talked about during the podcast because they were a huge impact on me and really helped improve my perspective on how to interview celebrities, really any guests that I have on the show. So again, thank you very much. And as far as the uh, Kevin Smith conversation that he and I had towards the end of the episode, that is something that I will be actively trying to make happen. Hopefully it will. You'll just have to stay tuned to find out. But for next week's show, I'll be chatting with director Anderson Cowan about his upcoming film Groupers, which has a Pretty outrageous but topical plot line, but we'll be talking about that on next week's show. Uh, before I get into the social media plugs, I do want to talk about a convention that I will be appearing at in a couple of weeks, Fanaticon, uh, which will be held October 4th through the 6th at the Dothan Civic Center in Dothan, Alabama. I will be there uh, as a media guest getting some interviews. I don't know if I'm going to be just doing a single episode kind of recapping the whole convention or if I'll be releasing the interviews individually. Uh, that probably won't be something I know until the week of or possibly during the convention. I might even do some Facebook Live stuff. We'll just have to see what happens. But you can follow Fanaticon on Facebook. Just search for Fanaticon and at Fanaticon Bama on Instagram. And I believe their website is alabamafanaticon.org. So should be a fun time. I was actually at the very first Fanaticon back in 2013 as part of the Nerd Cave podcast, 
Haven't been back since 2014, so uh, it should be fun catching up with some people, hopefully, and bringing you some great content for this podcast. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. Just search for The Derek Diamond Experience. You can follow me on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Podcast. And of course, thank you to my close friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for the podcast. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy can be found on their album Greetings from the Space Van, which is available on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you once again to John Kerwin. Enjoy the rest of your week. Have a safe and fun weekend. Thank you for tuning in to another awesome episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and we'll see you guys back here next Thursday. Thursday.